Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in and join us because today's topic is really important. Uh, We've touched on a lot of waste-related issues on Go Green Radio, and we have talked about the China national sword policy that has changed our waste system so dramatically. But what we haven't covered is a little bit more of the behind the scenes of what's going on, where our plastics, where what we think is being recycled is going. And the Guardian, uh, the U.S.-based folks that are journalists for The Guardian, have been doing an outstanding series called The United States of Plastic. And today, our guest is one of the journalists who's been working on this series. Her name is Erin McCormick, and she's a California-based reporter who specializes in database analysis. And we're going to be talking to her about some of the details of just a couple of the articles. But these are articles that are going to be going on through uh, 2019. And I really want all of our listeners to get a hold of these articles. If you go to the Guardian um, website, you can find United States of Plastic. Even just by Googling United States of Plastic, you'll find the series. But let's get started with Aaron. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Aaron. I am so glad to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Jill. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here. Well, before we dive into the details of the series that I mentioned, United States of Plastic, I'd like to have you tell us about The Guardian's approach to this series. Um, You know, you specialize in database analysis, and there are several other journalists involved in writing the series. Talk to us for a moment about the team that's working on this project and how you ensure the validity of the findings that your team reports. So our our idea going in was that we wanted to follow your plastic recycling waste from the time you put it in your blue bin or your recycling bin all the way through it going into the factory for processing, hopefully into some new items or whatever happens to it. So that threw us into this very complex world of recycling and solid waste and garbage management, and it's almost a science in and of itself. So our our biggest resource was to really get to know the experts in this field uh, and spend a lot of time learning the lay of the land and how it all works. Um, We started our project uh, with Guardian editors Alastair G. and Charlotte Simmons uh, visiting the local recycling plant in San Francisco uh, and learning about the high-tech machinery that they're using that can use lasers to sort one type of plastic from another type of plastic, hopefully to get it all into the right place for recycling. Um, then they brought me in. Um, I'm a longtime investigative reporter with an expertise in databases, and my role was to try to follow the government records that would show where our recycling was going. Uh, we also brought in health reporter Jessica Glenza to look at some of the domestic and the health aspects of the system. And then once we realized that um, our recycling is fanning out across the globe, 
we brought in uh, local reporters from 10 countries in Asia and Africa to try to follow where the, where the recycling was going and what was happening to it at the other end. Um, but, our, but our guideposts along the way were these amazing experts that were willing to let us kind of embed with them and teach us this system, um, which is really kind of obscure, I think, to a lot of the the public how complicated um, dealing with your trash can be. So um, we were really grateful to have a lot of guidance from many experts who spent many months working with us, and we were able to go back and, and, and check our facts along the way by working with them. That's fantastic. And, and I just wanted to make sure that our listeners understand that the concepts and the issues that we're going to be talking about today have been well vetted. I mean, you guys have a really, really solid process for gathering the data that you report. And, and it, this is trustworthy information. I want to say that right up front. So, Erin, you worked on a piece that came out in June that was entitled, Where Does Your Plastic Go? Global Investigation Reveals America's Dirty Secret. Help us set the stage for this piece by talking about how much, quote-unquote, recyclable material the U.S. exports to other countries. I'd like for you to give us a sense of the volume of material we're talking about. Yes, absolutely. We were really amazed at how much plastic uh, Americans produce and how much waste um, we produce. Um, the latest estimates available are from the EPA in 2015, um, and they estimated that Americans produce 34 million tons of plastic waste every year. That's enough plastic to fill the Houston Astrodome Stadium a thousand times. Unfortunately, though, only about 9% of that waste ends up in the recycling system and gets recycled. Um, and of that, almost three-quarters in 2015 was headed overseas. It was shipped out in cargo ships that maybe were returning from having delivered goods from China, and um, it was uh, most of it was being going right back to China, which was gladly accepting the material. Um, that's about a thousand shipping containers that were going out every day. Uh, but in 2017, uh, things really changed with our relationship to China, and it's really uh, cut the amount that is going out quite a lot. Yeah, let's talk about that, because in 2017, China gave notice that they were imposing uh, a policy that they called National Sword. Tell us about that policy and just how significant it was on America's recycling system. So, so as I was saying before, for many years, for decades, uh, China, China not only took America's plastic recycling, it was willing to pay good money for the recycling, and it would then melt down the plastic, and uh, Chinese factories would remanufacture it into all kinds of new products, and often those products were put back on ships and sent back to America to be sold uh, again to U.S consumers. Uh, but, but in recent years, China began to complain that the recycling uh, the U.S. was sending over was very poorly sorted, and it was contaminated with all sorts of 
uh, unusable garbage like diapers or uh, plastic was mixed with paper. Um, and a lot of it was ending up in landfills in China. And at the same time, uh, Chinese, the Chinese middle class has grown so much that they're not now starting to produce a lot of their own plastic waste, which China is trying to take advantage of. Uh, there was evidence that Chinese workers um, who were processing all this plastic were facing harrowing working conditions. A Chinese documentary came out in 2016 called Plastic, Plastic China, and it showed children living in piles of this plastic waste at one of these processing centers that was trying to sort the plastic into different types so it could be used by factories. Uh, so in, in 2017, the Chinese government said, no more foreign gar- garbage. That's a direct quote from them. Um, and they instituted the national sword policy. And they set strict rules to accept only the very cleanest uh, imported recycling. And essentially, that slammed the door on most of the U.S. recycling that had been going to China. Uh, only a very small percentage of what we were once sending is now uh, able to enter China. Wow. So in the wake of this, and this is fairly recent, how did America respond to China's ban? I mean, who was responsible for finding alternatives to shipping recycling to China, and, and what solutions did they find? Well, that's the thing about the U.S. recycling system. Uh, a lot of people think that it's a government-organized system that is essentially acting in a charitable way to do something good uh, with, with the waste we throw away. But actually, uh, there isn't a, a one a unified system at all. It's really a lot of different businesses um, ec- dominated by the market uh, and they're trying to find a way to uh, to stay afloat by selling the recycling that they collect uh, and keeping their businesses going. Um, so when China shut its doors, the market essentially collapsed. And it was up to a lot of individual business owners to try to find ways to build new markets. And that's really been a scramble uh, but just because um, China shut its doors um, doesn't mean that the Chinese factories that make products didn't need that recycled plastic. Uh, those, Chinese, those Chinese factories are still interested in buying the plastic pellets made from the recycling, so there's still a market there. So many of the, the Chinese processors and other businessmen that had been making those pellets looked for new places to do that. And they ended up moving to different countries like Southeast Asia and setting up shop there. Oh, wow. Tell us a little bit about that. What kind of, where did they go? Well, you know, first they went to some of the larger countries in Southeast Asia, uh, like Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, and Vietnam. And, you know, these may have been businesses that were already operating, uh, perhaps out of China. They already had equipment, and now they couldn't get the material they needed to, um, to do their recycling and to make the pellets that they could sell to these Chinese factories. 
also they started opening up in in uh, Malaysia and Indonesia, and um, you know there started to be a lot of problems with them. There were problems with unlicensed operators opening up, and they were just bringing in shipping container after shipping container, and a lot of the stuff was piling up on the land. You know, you would have these mountains of plastic coming in from the U.S. and other parts of the world, you know, sometimes piles like 20 feet high piled all over the landscape and, you know, they would sort through some of it and melt it down and turn it into pellets, but some of it would just sit there and residents were complaining that it was burning out in the open air or they would find it on the roadsides uh, and government started to really crack down uh, and, and try to stop uh, some of the illegal uh, operations and then some of the recyclers just went away leaving this plastic behind with no one to clean it up. Wow. And, and, and one of the things that I think that is so interesting in what we've talked about so far is that the solutions that they were finding, guess what? They weren't domestic. They were still overseas. And the domestic infrastructure piece is what is so missing. And, you know, the we haven't had to develop it in so long because for decades, as you mentioned, we were sending things overseas. And so our domestic capabilities to deal with this ban from China were basically nil for the most part. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more to talk about with Aaron McCormick from The Guardian. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Thank you. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us today. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Erin McCormick, and she is a journalist for The Guardian. Uh, there's a U.S. version of The Guardian, and they are doing an outstanding piece of journalistic phenomenon with a series called The United States of Plastic. It started back in June with some articles, and it will continue through the end of the year of 2019. And I've really want you guys to check these out. Uh, before we went on break, we were talking about one article that Aaron contributed to. Um, it was called, Where Does Your Plastic Go? Global Investigation Reveals America's Dirty Secret. And Aaron, that article um, de- describes conditions in a village in Vietnam that is just inundated with plastic from the U.S. Describe what plastic recycling looks like and how it impacts the people there. Yeah, this was one of the most uh, amazing and startling things that we found in our investigation. Uh, in Vietnam, there are all these craft villages that have each have their own specialty. And in the, in the area around Hanoi, there are villages that specialize in making pottery or making silk. Well, there's a whole village, the village of Minh Kai, that handles plastic scrap. And our reporter in Vietnam, uh, Bennett Murray, found that, that about 13 or 14 trucks an hour were coming into this tiny village and dumping these huge loads of plastic recycling that is being reported, uh, imported from the U.S. and other countries. And this stuff was piling up all over town. The, t- the town even has a welcome arch uh, with its name on it. And even that has piles of plastic building up all around it. Uh, and it was clear that much of the plastic was, was coming from the U.S. He found a shopping bag from ShopRite, a U.S. grocery chain, and there were Cheetos bags with U.S. labeling on them. Uh, and then the workers in this town were, were squatting in these piles of plastic and sorting it piece by piece by type and by color, and they were putting translucent in one pile and opaque in another. Uh, one of the women that uh, Murray met in the village said that she made the equivalent of about $6.50 a day sorting the plastic, mm-hmm. and she couldn't get any other type of work, but she was very worried that it might have some health effects on her. She said she was afraid of the fumes of the plants in the town that, that melt the plastic down to turn it into pellets to go to the, uh, factories. Uh, and she was afraid to drink the drinking water in her village because she was afraid it might be contaminated. In countries where uh, really a huge amount of this recycling has been going on, like Malaysia, um, there's just these piles and piles laying around on the landscape, and there's complaints of it burning in the middle of the night and people smelling fumes and all these unlicensed operators that the government's been trying to crack down on, but um, it's hard to, uh, to, to really stop the business from cropping up around the country. 
Wow. So a lot of these nations like Vietnam and Malaysia and Thailand have started to try to restrict uh, the plastic that can come into their countries as well. So they're taking the same steps as China and starting to say, hey, don't bring this plastic here. Mm-hmm. And there was a section in the article a little further down that talked about what happened as countries like Vietnam, Malaysia, and Thailand started banning imports. Um, the article reads that shipments began making their way to Cambodia, Laos, Ghana, Ethiopia, Kenya, and Senegal, which th- those countries had previously handled pretty much no U.S. plastic. I think the average American would be shocked to learn this and probably find it pretty hard to fathom that our plastics are traveling so far to be recycled. Help us understand what's happening in those distant Asian and African countries that are taking in U.S. plastics now for the first time. Yes. So as, as, as many of these larger countries started to shut their doors to plastic, the business owners that, you know, maybe have been processing this plastic for years are looking for new places to operate and maybe they already have the machinery and they have the expertise. So they're trying to move into new places uh, to continue to, to melt the plastic down and make it into pellets and then sell it to Chinese factories or other, other countries' factories. Um, and they're often looking for places where there is a lot of cheap labor and where there aren't very many environmental laws um, governing how they can run their processing plants um, because that, of course, makes it a lot more expensive. And this is a business that runs on very small margins. Um, you know, there are also a lot of middlemen, and those are the people, the exporters that maybe buy recycling from the local recycling agencies around the United States um, and they will buy it and they'll put it on ships and they'll send it to wherever someone is willing to pay for it. So as uh, as these operations moved to new places, they started uh, cropping up in places like Cambodia and Bangladesh and Senegal. And a lot of these places really don't have any local mechanisms for processing their own plastic waste. There's really no good way of getting rid of their own plastic. In Cambodia, for instance, uh, the, the plastic was being sent to a village that is, is basically living on a sea of plastic waste. The villagers have these wooden houses on stilts that are just above the tidal plain, and uh, the plastic has collected so that it's actually forming a carpet underneath them and it's getting into the ocean there. And that's just the local waste. You know, imagine what happens when you start to import U.S. um, plastic waste in there. Well, and one of the things that's so disheartening, and again, the, the article touches on this, is how much of the material that's being sent to these countries is actually recyclable and how much actually ends up as waste or landfill material. Talk to us about that issue because, you know, we're talking as if everything that's being sent over there is actually recyclable and that's not true. Give us some idea of how much of the, of the imports they're receiving just end up being landfill material. 
Well, that is something that, that deep down we don't really know. We know that there's a lot of really valuable material in this recycling, and the soda bottles uh, mm-hmm. that are labeled number one PET, they're very re- valuable to recycle, and also milk jugs um, that, are, uh, that are labeled HDPE. Um, but a lot of other material is marginally recyclable, and it it depends on whether somebody can make money by selling it and how much money they can make. Um, one of the concerns that sources we spoke to had was that, that people would buy a whole load of mixed plastic and then perhaps once it got overseas, they might pull out only the valuable bottles and jugs and then landfill the rest. Uh, you know, even if, if various parts of the mixed recycling is recyclable and if they do make something out of it, the re- recycling process itself has a margin of waste involved. So there's a certain amount of the, the, the plastic that's going to have to be thrown away anyway. And I've heard that that could be anywhere from 25% all the way up to 75%. So it's important that countries that are doing this have some way of handling the waste products of this industry. Wow. So besides filling up landfills or, you know, just creating garbage heaps in other countries, what are some of the other environmental and human health implications of exporting U.S. plastics for recycling? That's a really good question. Um, Yeah. because I know the that you know, you're talking danger. about Vietnam. Yeah, they, they yeah, were really concerned about that. Yeah, I think the most obvious that. danger is that it will go, um, it, that it will make its way into the ocean. You know, this, is, this can be very clearly seen. Um, you know, even if they put the waste in landfills, many of these countries don't manage landfills very tightly. They're open air. They might, the, the waste can wash right into the ocean. Uh, we found that uh, last year the equivalent of 68,000 shipping containers were sent to developing countries that studies have shown mismanage more than 70% of their own plastic waste. So getting into the environment is a big danger. Now, how this plastic affects health in the countries that, that it's going to is a, is a, is a big issue for scientific study. It's a very complex issue, the, the uh, effects of plastic pollution. Uh, people in these villages are complaining about you know, getting sick from the smell of the, fu- the fumes that, they're, that, that are burning nearby, or they, they complain of coughing. They may be afraid to drink the water. Uh, but it's unclear exactly how um, plastic pollution might affect them. Studies have linked the fumes from burning plastic to respiratory illness and to the release of carcinogens, uh, but uh, a lot more needs to be uh, learned about this issue before we can be really sure what the, mm-hmm. what the effects are. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here and take a wild guess that that is why we don't have a lot of domestic infrastructure to handle our plastic recycling, because we do have, um, you know, quite a bit of of regulation on emissions and what have you. And um, it's probably pretty tough to run a plant like that, um, you know, without it being some sort of impact on on human health and the environment. Uh, But hopefully, I know that we have a lot of 
government agencies and we have even some private uh, foundations that are trying to help fund new domestic infrastructure. Um, but part of the problem that, that everybody in the industry sees is that zoning for those kinds of plants is going to be tough. Um, you know, NIMBYism is a thing in America, and I have a feeling it's going to be pretty tough to, even if there's funding to create those plants, um, finding local areas that are willing to zone for those plants to be built is going to be a tough sell. Um, and, and maybe that's something that you guys will be getting into in a later part of the series. But um, I know that that's, that's being talked about on a, on a weekly, if not daily basis in a lot of communities around the country. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we have so much more to talk about with Aaron McCormick from The Guardian. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to the radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Erin McCormick, and she's a journalist with The Guardian. They are doing a series that you really need to read. It's some of the best reporting that I have seen on what's going on with the recycling system and the the waste system in America since the Chinese banned a good deal of our recycling exports. And it's it's just unbelievable, um, some of the facts that they've uncovered. Um, Before the break, we were talking about some of the um, health impacts and some of the local impacts on villages in Asian countries that are still taking some of the United States uh, exports of recycling materials. But one of the countries that I was most surprised to read about um, that has started taking materials from the U.S. is Turkey. I mean, they are a member of NATO. They have been a critical U.S. ally in the Middle East. I mean, uh, this is a country we have quite a, a long rapport with, and yet they're now taking 
our material, our American plastics in Turkey, and not everybody's excited about that. Talk to us about what's happening in Turkey and American plastics, Erin. Yes, um, yeah, Turkey is a very industrialized country, and we found that there are some very high-tech factories there, and they're doing what recycling is supposed to be doing. They're turning plastic recycling waste into new shopping bags. Um, the problem is what it's doing to the local system for processing the plastic waste that, that the Turkish population creates. Um, they... Uh, are now able to get U.S. plastic recycling shipped to them so cheaply that they're no longer buying it from the many thousands of scrap pickers who go around. They, they go around wandering the streets and going door to door and picking up all kinds of recyclables, and then they find ways to resell it for recycling to the Turkish industry. But they're complaining that they're... Um, that they're uh, their their incomes are being cut because they can't sell their plastic more cheaply than the U.S. plastic that's being shipped in. So they're losing their livelihoods, and they're starting to protest this and, and follow these shipments of U.S. waste that are coming in and, and, and try to raise this issue to uh, save their industry so that Turkish plastic can be picked up and processed instead of our U.S. waste there. Wow. That, that's so, it's just so unbelievable, the ripple effect, uh, you know, of our our consumption, our, you know, disposal processes. I mean, that something like that could end up being a geopolitical issue for protest. It's just, it's mind boggling how complex this issue is. One of the articles that you worked on, Erin, discusses the market conditions for plastic recycling and the fact that many of the plastics that Americans put into their recycling bins end up in landfills or incinerators because there's just no market. Help us understand this issue a little bit better. Yeah, so uh, since uh, China's national sword policy went into effect, the amount of recycling that we're exporting has actually decreased dramatically. It's It's been cut by about half. And what that means is um, a huge amount of maybe the less valuable recycling products are ending up stuck here in the U.S. We found that there's about 14,000 shipping containers a month of plastic that used to go overseas and that no longer does go overseas. So that's here, and the local recycling market is trying to figure out how to deal with it. But often, there's really just no place for it to go. Um, you know, there are some domestic recyclers in the U.S., and uh, and and now that this problem has has come up, more are trying to open. But there's really not that many factories in the U.S. that take plastic and process it so that it can be made into something new. And they face a, a kind of a difficult economic system um, because in the, in the past, they haven't really been able to get this plastic. Uh, China has been willing to pay more to buy it than um, it really makes sense for U.S. processors to, to pay. And, you know, they haven't really been able to build a market in the past. And now, uh, you know, it's not very valuable, this, this waste, and it's, it's hard to sell it and make money by processing mm-hmm. uh, the plastic. 
Yeah. And, and what types of plastics still have enough market value to actually be recycled? I mean, what are we talking about? Just a, a handful of, of items? What, what can we still recycle? Well, it, technically, a lot of things can be recycled. So the question is, what's valuable enough to make the recycling system economical for these right. businesses? And the, the two really strong areas for plastic recycling are the PET bottles, that's polyethylene terephthalate, mm-hmm. um, and those are marked with a number one at the bottom. Uh, and then there are the milk and detergent ch- jugs, HDPE, uh, high-density dens- high polyethylene, and these are marked with a number two. Um, so there are very strong domestic markets for these and also still international markets for these products. Um, interestingly, though, uh, for these same types of plastic, the number one and the number two, PET and HDPE, if they're not in a bottle shape, it's much harder to recycle them. Um, we found that the takeout containers and the meat trays and the plastic cups made out of number one plastic uh, PET, um, they can't be recycled in the same batch with the bottles. Uh, they're made uh, through a process called thermoforming. And it's different from the bottles, which are blow-molded, and it, it changes the chemistry of the plastic so that you can't mix the two together. So while the bottles are very recyclable and, and worth a lot of money, um, the plastic trays, we couldn't find anyone in the U.S. that was actually recycling these trays. Wow. Wow. And, you know, this is, this is having a huge ripple effect across the country. Talk to us about some of the communities like maybe Santa Monica and some others that are either eliminating or drastically changing their recycling programs. Yes, it's been a huge crisis. These recycling programs simply can't find places to send their products to be recycled. And a lot of them were relying before on bringing in money from selling recycling. And now they're having to pay money to send it out. And if they really wanted to see it recycled, that would cost a lot of money. But even if they have to send it out to get it landfilled, they're having to pay for that. Uh, you know, you mentioned Santa Monica, and they were one of the first in California to have their um, bottle um, uh, deposit uh, recyclers closed down. And that's, you know, these are the people where if you, if you, uh, you put down a five-cent deposit on a plastic bottle, you can turn it in and get your five cents back. And the, the business in Santa Monica wasn't making enough money. They had to close down. Well, just this last week, the biggest uh, bottle recycling uh, company in California, um, the, taking these uh, bo- deposit bottles, closed down. And now 284 more of these bottle collection facilities are shutting down. They're going out of business. But, you know, in all kinds of uh, in all kinds of cities, they're having trouble, and in some places, they're having to suspend their whole uh, curbside recycling system, um, especially with a lot of smaller cities where they don't have a big city budget uh, to, to subsidize the cost of um, 
what they used to make by selling their their plastic. Uh, places like Bullhead City, Arizona, and Douglas County and Milton Freedwater in Oregon have had to suspend their curbside cycling business altogether. Other other uh, cities are having to landfill everything that they pick up in their recycling. Uh, Nogales, Arizona, is having to do that, and even some of the big cities around California that are willing to pay for recycling collection and want to keep it going are finding that some of the things that they collect are having to have to be landfilled. Um, Los Angeles County, uh, and there are various recyclers operating under the county, um, they're still collecting things, but all the plastics that fall into the category of mixed plastics, and that is those takeout containers or plastics that are labeled number four, five, six, or seven, um, all of those types of plastics are having to go to the landfill because they don't have anywhere to send it uh, that is willing to turn it into new products. And in Monterey County and the city of El Cerrito in California, they've just stopped taking those mixed plastics. Now that they will only accept uh, the water and soda bottles and the milk jugs. Wow, that's that's a huge shift for a lot of people who felt like they were really doing the right thing by putting things in the recycling bin. Um, and I'm not sure that a lot of Americans realize how drastically um, their recycling capability has changed. Um, There are a group of folks that you all included. I actually know them, and I'm going to see them next week at the California Resource Recovery Association Conference um, that were in one of your articles, and they were talking about holding manufacturers responsible for the cost of disposal and recycling of these plastic materials. Talk to us a little bit about how that would work and who some of these folks are and organizations are who are pushing for that. Yes, um, there are a lot of environmental groups pushing for manufacturers to take responsibility for their products, including their packaging, from the time uh, they create it all the way to its end of life. And this concept is called extended producer responsibility. responsibility. Um, and it's an idea that's been around a long time, um, there, there, the, the, it, it means that the costs of disposing of the packaging will be hand, handled by the manufacturer. And, of course, these costs end up being passed on to the consumers as well. And the bottle bill in California where people pay a deposit of maybe five cents to, when they buy a plastic bottle and then the bottle can be turned in and, and the, uh, the consumer can get the five cents back when they're done with it, is kind of, that's kind of the simplest form of these programs, and um, it really incentivizes people to turn in their bottles, and when we've had these bottle bills, it's meant that the recycling rate for those products is much higher than um, than a lot of other types of plastics. So it really, you know, incentivizes the consumer to turn their bottles back in, and then uh, the companies that are creating the products are also helping to pay to make sure that they get recycled. Um, so these have been uh, these have been programs that environmentalists are are enthusiastically um, behind. However, uh, manufacturers are not so thrilled about them, and they've really opposed them because, of course, they cost money. 
Um, in other countries, these, these programs have worked really well for decades. Um, in Canada, uh, in British Columbia, uh, manufacturers are required to run stewardship programs that pay for the recycling of all kinds of products uh, ranging from plastic packaging and water bottles and, and uh, uh, takeout trays to motor oil and large appliances and paint and electronics uh, so that the, the companies that make the products pay in to an organization that runs the recycling program and ends up collecting the containers and then makes sure that they get recycled. And so Canada is able to recycle things that we aren't getting recycled in California. There's no market, but because the manufacturers are helping to pay for it in Canada, uh, more things can be recycled. Right. And also uh, Germany, we know that extended uh, producer responsibility bills often mean that products change. Um, when when producers have to be responsible for the end of life handling and the cost of that, oftentimes they improve their products to be um, cheaper and more uh, efficient to be dismantled or, or recycled or what have you or turned into something new. And so there's also some history behind that. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Aaron McCormick, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information, about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in and join us for this very important topic. I think that a lot of Americans are beginning to catch wind of the fact that something radical has changed in our recycling system, but maybe we don't know why. We don't fully understand it. And thanks to The Guardian and their outstanding reporting in a new series they started in June called The United States of Plastic, we can better understand how complex this issue is, the global implications, and how one piece of geopolitical policy out of China that started at the end of 2017 has completely changed um, so much of what we had taken for granted for decades um, with our recycling system. And I'm really excited that Aaron McCormick, one of the journalists who's been working on this series for The Guardian, has been able to join us today. Um, there was an article that came out in this series, The United States of Plastic, that was entitled, How You're Recycling Plastic Wrong, From Coffee Cups to Toothpaste. And after reading that, I, I the next trip I took to the grocery store was pretty grim for me. I was walking through the aisles after reading that article and just realizing that much of what I was seeing is going to be in a landfill in a week or two. I'm just wondering how you and your fellow journalists are processing all of the information that you're uncovering. How has it impacted you guys personally? That, that's a great question, Jill. Um, using the recycling system prop- properly can be a huge challenge. And, in fact, I wonder if there's any real way to do it. You know, a lot of the things that we think are recyclable um, really aren't. Um, like those coffee cups that you, know, you think you can put in the paper recycling, it turns out that they have these plastic linings inside them that can't be recycled, and they end up messing up the paper recycling. Um, a lot of the products that have those triangular chasing arrow symbols on the bottom, you think, oh, yeah, this is recyclable. Well, it does, the, that symbol doesn't actually mean that it's recyclable. Uh, that is just uh, um, the number inside there is the resin code, which tells uh, manufacturers what type of plastic has been used there. But it doesn't mean that, there's re- that they're recyclable or that anyone is really willing to make a new product out of that out of that piece of recycling. You know, so what we're hoping to encourage um, the, our readers and consumers to do is really look at the bigger questions around recycling. I mean, it's easy to feel kind of guilty about, you know, w- w- where you're putting your recycling and the fact that the system isn't working. But it, it seems like we need to look for larger answers, um, either by not using so much plastic and finding ways to cut the amount of waste that we're producing, uh, or by, you know, uh, encouraging our society to build better recycling programs. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's uh, that article really impacted me in a personal way as well. I mean, um, just for instance, in the dog food aisle, I have a dog and, you know, I was under the impression that the little plastic uh, containers that the wet dog food came in were recyclable. And once I read your article, I checked with my local waste hauler. It's not. So I had to choose canned food if I wanted to, you know, have a container that was recyclable. He doesn't really like it. So, we're, <laughs> you know, it, there are just some things that there are no other way to, to buy. Like, for instance, strawberries at my local grocery store. They don't sell them loose. They don't sell them in a cardboard box. They only sell them in plastic containers that are not recyclable. And so it's a it's a huge shift in thinking when you look at, you know, if you really want to make sure you're not 
you know, filling up your local landfill um, and in what you buy. And, and so it's at the at the outset, it's a little bit discouraging, but I think that if enough consumers start to talk to their favorite brands of this, that, and the other thing and ask them to put it in containers and packaging that's actually recyclable or, you know, it doesn't have to be sent to the landfill um, and use the power of the purse, maybe maybe we can get something bigger done than just um, a better recycling system, but actually a better packaging system. I don't know, but I, I'm hopeful that something something big is about to happen as a result of this recycling crisis. And I don't know if you guys even allow yourselves to talk about that when you're, you know, when you're working on this, but, uh, you know, what do you guys think would be the best possible outcome, uh, the upshot of all this great reporting that you're doing? Well, you know, I, I think you're right. The fact that we're now talking about it and we're raising these issues, um, you know, to, to the to the, the attention of the manufacturers that, that people care about this and we're willing to spend our money differently um, can make a difference and will make a difference. And and just that the public is getting involved in talking about how can we make it better and, and also saying, hey, we don't want to, you know, send a bunch of plastic overseas to some village in Vietnam. We want to take care of this and find a responsible way of handling it. And I think the discussion can be uh, very valuable. And I think, you know, also people are beginning to see that maybe they don't need so much plastic. You know, when I'm going out shopping, I'm, you know, yesterday I kind of wanted to have some smoothies and I went into the smoothie shop and I looked at the plastic cups and the plastic Mm -hmm. lids and the plastic straws and I said, you know, I'll just go home and get a drink of water. (laughs) And it's hard to avoid all plastic, but, you know, it's not that hard to cut down a bit and to really look for ways to, you know, buy your lettuce without a big plastic container wrapped around it. Um, There are ways, and the more uh, we use our economic power, the more ways um, that will become, you know, available to us, and manufacturers will will listen. They will. They'll respond to that. Um, You know, if we just choose not to participate in the kind of packaging we don't approve of, um, things will change. That. That's how the market works. You know, Erin, a lot of our listeners are college students, and they're very concerned about things like climate change and environmental pollution. And and stories like these can be disheartening and, and for, for young people to grapple with. What would you like to say to those listeners about the problem of plastics in our world? You know, I think there's a lot of opportunities here um, for young people to get involved in creative innovation in ways to solve these problems um, that we haven't thought of yet. I mean, for instance, there's a lot of hip new food delivery services out there, and they're bringing food to my house in these plastic containers. Uh, You know, how can we innovate so that I can still get the food but without without the plastic, um, and I think there are some companies that are working on that right now. Whole systems of, you know, maybe we could use washable containers, and there could be companies that handle that for the businesses that are doing food delivery. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunities for new science and new innovation, and um, there are real solutions out there. I think that's a great message, and it's just exactly what they need to hear. For every problem, there is a solution, and 
there can be a, a pretty lucrative living to be made if you're the one who's coming up with these solutions. I mean, the alternatives are very expensive. The alternatives to um, just business as usual are, are going to be more and more costly if we don't innovate. And and I think that some of the people who care the most, some of these young up-and-comers, could be the ones who actually benefit the most from coming up with the solutions. Erin, I want to thank you, and I want to thank the journalists at The Guardian for this outstanding work, and thanks for joining us on Go Green Radio. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program.